Hey everyone, and welcome back to another thrilling adventure of Superman. I am Michael Bradley, your host. This is episode 12 of the show, and this time out we will be going back to the funny pages for the second storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. Also this episode, I will be finishing up my two-part spotlight on Superman's co-creator, writer Jerry Siegel. And at the end of the episode, I will have a big announcement concerning a new project that I'm involved in, and I think you're all going to want to hear that, so be sure to keep an ear out for that at the end of the episode. Before we get into things, I've got another iTunes review I want to read. This one is from Mark Camp, and it was titled, Quickly Becoming My Favorite Podcast. And Mark wrote, Thanks for the terrific podcast. It's clear the amount of thought, research, and love that goes into the show you do. You tell the early stories of Superman clearly, concisely, and with great humor and respect. The show is really helping me appreciate the origins of Superman's character and story. So, thanks again, and keep up the great work. And I appreciate that, Mark, uh, especially the comments about the uh, the synopses. I have wondered what people think of them, if I'm going into too much detail or not enough, or just right, or, or what have you. But it, So it's good to hear a little feedback that uh, I'm explaining things clearly and that you're enjoying you know, the, the overall history of the character. So I really do appreciate uh, Mark leaving the iTunes review, and I, I appreciate all the iTunes reviews that have been left. I'm thoroughly convinced that it does encourage people to listen, or at least convince them to. So to those that have left them, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for all the feedback I've gotten. It's been really great hearing that people enjoy what I've put together here, and it lets me know that I'm not just talking into space. So. For those who have emailed or left a review, or for those who will in the future, thank you very much. Please continue to do so, because I really enjoy hearing the feedback. Also, I want to say thanks to Brian Voss, who left me a note on Facebook. Brian gets the prestigious honor of being the first person to come in on the show via Facebook, so way to go, Brian! Um, there's really no prize for that or anything. Well, bragging rights, I guess, so that's something, right? Yeah, okay. Anyway, the second storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper strip was 18 strips long and ran from January 30th to February 18th, 1939. That puts it starting about a week or so before the release of Action Comics number 10, which was the focus of last episode. This is going to be a strange story to recap. I'm sure it went unnoticed at the time to most people who are reading them, but it's a bit of an odd story for those of us who have been looking at all of the Superman stories in chronological order like we do. It's an original story, but it's comprised of a number of scenes that are very similar, if not identical to, scenes from previous Superman stories, just with different characters. The art is redrawn, but some panels are identical to those from earlier stories, or at least the events that happen in are the same. Uh, you know, there's just new dialogue and new characters. It's similar to the last strip and a half or so of the first story in relation to panels from Action Comics number one. And I'll admit, I'm not sure exactly why this story is the way it is. I've never been quite clear on if these earliest strips were the ones modified for use in Action Comics number one, or if they were created new, you know, air quotes, new, when the newspaper strip came about. According to Siegel and Schuster, they had four weeks worth of daily strips done when they were attempting to sell the character. Then they modified those to create the first story for use in Action Comics number one. With this story's 18 strips and the 12 from the first story, 
That's 30 strips total, or 5 weeks. So that combined with the fact that the art looks different leads me to believe that they aren't. But I'm hesitant to say that definitively because they could have taken those original strips and modified them again, adding in some original material for use in the newspapers. And it could have been a time issue. It just, it seems a bit early in the strip for there to be much of a time crunch. And if there was a time crunch, why not just reprint the first couple stories from the comics rather than creating stories from piecemealed scenes from previous comics? I don't know. And I'm not sure that anyone alive still does, so we just have to sh soldier on. Still, this is a really fun story and I enjoyed it quite a bit. But as I go through the synopsis, if some things seem really familiar, then that's why. There's no way to be completely sure about the credits here. It is credited to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster on each strip, and they obviously worked on it, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was some inking and background work by someone else, be it Paul Loretta or Paul Cassidy or whoever, especially if those Grand Comics database credits for the last several issues are correct. This story has been titled War on Crime and War Against Crime in the reprints. The index to the volume says War Against, while the title page for the story says War On. I'll again be listing the individual strip titles in the show notes at greatcrypton.com, but there is one I wanted to make note of, and that is for the third strip in the storyline, the 15th strip overall, which is titled A Strange Visitor. This is, I think, the first time that phrase has been used in conjunction with Superman. It's not a major thing, but it's still noteworthy given that it becomes part of the famous opening to George Reeves's Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. That's such a great theme. Even though I was born long after The Adventures of Superman aired on TV, it still makes me feel like a, you know, an eight-year-old kid sitting in my pajamas in front of the TV watching those old black-and-white episodes. And it's interesting to hear that theme now and see just how descriptive it is of Superman even in these earliest stories. Because we've seen Superman be faster than a speeding bullet and bend steel in his bare hands and leap buildings. And it's, just, it's just interesting to see how how much things change and, and how little they change as well. Anyway, to get back to the episode at hand, our story begins with a news report on the front page of the Daily Star that 10 employees of the First National Bank are locked inside the vault by robbers who held up the bank. 
Apparently, the vault is equipped with a time lock and can't be opened for several hours. Rescuers are using acetylene torches in an attempt to free the trapped men because there is fear that the men will suffocate before the rescuers can burn through the massive doors. Suddenly, in a very George Reeves-like move, Superman busts through the wall of the bank, much to the surprise and the fear of those inside the bank. He then leaps in the direction of the bank vault and, with a deafening crash, rips the vault door from its hinges with his bare hands, freeing those inside. People crowd around Superman, asking how he could do such a feat, but Superman says that he can't stick around to answer their questions and quickly makes an exit, leaping high above the city back to the apartment of Clark Kent. News spreads quickly of the rescue, so quickly, in fact, that by the time he arrives home, there's another edition of the Daily Star heralding the save. The story is vague on the details of the rescue, but does report that, unfortunately, two of the men had already died. Clark, who here is wearing a loose-fitting shirt, his hair is styled like Superman, and he doesn't have his glasses, is struck with deep sadness at the news that he wasn't able to save all of the men, and decides that he must become a reporter in order to get the news flashes as they happen so that this type of tragedy will never occur again. Sometime later, we open to the busy offices of the Daily Star, which is described as a progressive newspaper. Reporter Lois Lane presses her boss to let her continue her expose series on a corruption scandal among local politicians because she's zeroing in on the leader of the entire debacle. The editor agrees to give her a little more time, but warns that she needs to get to the bottom of things soon or it's back to writing the romance column. Out in the waiting area sits Clark Kent, now in a suit, glasses, and slicked-back hair. With his super-sensitive hearing, he has overheard the conversation between Lois and the editor. Why he was listening in on a private conversation, I don't know, but he comments that Lois has spunk. He watches as Lois exits the office and slyly signals to a gangster-looking type fella who had just come in. He wonders what someone like Lois would have to do with a mug like that. Gee, Clark, judge a book by its cover much? <laughs> but before he can ponder it further, is he is told by the receptionist that it's time for his appointment with the editor. A quick box of narration tells us that Clark has adopted the glasses and, quote, assumed an attitude of meekness, unquote, to avert any suspicion that he is, in reality, the totally awesome Superman. Clark enters the editor's office and tells him that he would like to apply for the position of a reporter. While speaking to the editor, Clark continues to eavesdrop on private conversations, listening in on the conversation between Lois and the gangster mook, who we learn is nicknamed Weasel. Lois gives Weasel $40 and says that she only needs one more bit of information from him, the name of the person behind the grafting at City Hall. But Weasel clams up and says it'll take $500 for him to reveal that kind of information and tells Lois to get the money by tomorrow night. I just want to stop for a second and remind that this is 1939, so that $40 that she offered, over $600 in 2011 money, and $500 would be close to $8,000. The questionable ethics of paying for sources aside, I really wonder where Lois gets that kind of cash and if she's paying all her sources that well. Anyway. Back at the editor's office, the editor scoffs at Clark's appeal for a job due to his lack of experience. He says he's found the only way to get rid of folks like this is to give them an impossible assignment and apparently watch them fail miserably. Undeterred, Clark eagerly asks for his assignment. The editor explains that there has been a rumor that someone with fantastic strength, a guy named Superman, 
actually exists, and he wants Clark to interview him for the Daily Star. With a huge grin, Clark tells the editor that if he can't find anything about Superman, no one can. Once back outside, Clark, apparently in the middle of broad daylight, takes off his suit, revealing the costumed form of Superman, and spots Weasel walking down the street. He grabs Weasel's arm and demands to know who is behind the grafting, but Weasel says that he doesn't know anything about it. Superman then grabs Weasel's foot and leaps high up onto a set of telephone wires. He again asks Weasel the name of the big boss. Despite being scared out of his wits, Weasel still refuses to tell, fearing a worse fate from those that he would be rotting out. As we the readers know from the comic book stories, Superman doesn't take no for an answer, and so, in a scene pretty much identical to Superman's treatment of Alex Greer in Action Comics number 1, which I talked about in the first episode of the show, Superman does a front flip and begins running along the wires, further scaring Weasel. He hops over a pole, nearly electrocuting them both, and then attempts to leap to a nearby building, missing the building accidentally on purpose, sending the two plummeting towards the street below. As they land, shattering the pavement and sending chunks of concrete flying, Superman suggests that they do it again. Having had enough, Weasel relents and reveals to Superman that the man behind the corruption is Jack Martin, political boss, and Superman says he'll have to pay Martin a visit. At that very moment, however, Martin and one of his cronies spy Lois walking down the street. Martin hands a gun to his thug and tells him that he knows what to do. Meanwhile, in a scene similar to the opening of Action Comics number 2, Weasel calls a guy named Nicky and tells him to warn the boss, aka Martin, that Superman is coming after him, and Nicky says to tell arrange a warm welcome. Shortly, Superman climbs through the window of Martin's office, finds Nicky, and demands to know where Martin is. Nicky gives a signal, and suddenly a series of panels open around the room, revealing several men who hit Superman with a barrage of machine gun fire. Superman makes quick work of the gat-toting thugs, then threatens Nicky, who reveals that Martin has gone to the Daily Star to take care of, you know, take care of, that girl reporter. In a panel paying homage to the yet-to-be-published cover of Superman number 1, or I guess you could look at it as paying homage to that splash panel from the issue we looked at last episode, Superman leaps high above the city and focuses his telescopic vision mentioned for the first time, not just in the Daily Strip, but in any Superman story, on the Daily Star offices in the far distance, and sees Martin's cronies forcing Lois into a car. Shortly, the car speeds down the road, towards a plane which Martin has waiting in a field just outside city limits. As they drive, they see Superman standing akimbo in the middle of the road. Martin lays on the gas, fully intending to run him down, but Superman latches onto the front bumper of the car, forcing it to a dead halt. He then picks up the car, shakes out its occupants, Lois included. While Superman smashes the car, action number one style, into a nearby rock, Martin grabs Lois and drags her towards his waiting plane. Lois tries to fight back, but Martin forces her inside and the plane quickly takes off. This sequence with Superman stopping the thugs in the moving car, then smashing it to bits, is pretty much lifted, as you might have guessed, from the scene in that first issue where Lois was abducted by Butch Mason. The art varies a little bit, though in a way you might not expect. The money shot, with Superman smashing the car, is actually downplayed in that particular panel. I'll be sure to include this panel in the show notes, but what we see is the foreground. In the foreground is Martin dragging Lois away, and in the background 
Nearly in complete silhouette is Superman making short work of the car. It makes me wonder if Siegel and Schuster, conscious of the fact that they were borrowing from previous stories, didn't think, hey, maybe we should you know, tweak things just a little bit here since we've already used that as the cover and on the inside of a panel. I don't know if that was the case, but it would make sense. As a reader, looking back at these stories, the way they've tweaked this panel, it feels more like an homage rather than an outright swipe. Anyway, Lois continues to fight with Martin as the plane takes off and ends up falling out the door of the plane, which no one thought to pause 30 seconds and close. Anyway, Lois plummets down towards a sure death. Seeing Lois's plight, Superman leaps into the air and is able to grab Lois in midair and land safely again on the ground. Lois, in startled amazement, asks what kind of creature Superman is. In reply, Superman repeats the line he used on her in Action Comics number one, but with a twist. He says, You needn't be afraid. I won't harm you. But as for those cowardly killers... Oh, snap. It's so on. And I am so white. <laughs> anyway, Superman leaps back into the air, head first towards Martin's plane which, for some reason, looks like it's doing a nosedive towards the ground, but maybe that's just an art issue. Still, the plane swerves to avoid Superman, but he grabs one of the tail wings and proceeds to climb on top of the plane, riding it Major T.J. King Kong style, even going so far as to let out a festive, Ride him, cowboy! as the plane swirls and dives, trying to throw him off. Superman makes his way up the fuselage until he reaches the wing area, then proceeds to rip the wing off the plane, causing it to spiral downward, crashing into a fiery blaze, apparently killing Martin and the pilot because we never see or hear from either of them again. When Superman lands, he hears Lois screaming. Apparently, distraught by all the commotion, Lois had run off and had stumbled blindly into a bog of quicksand. And that begs the question of just what kind of landscape surrounds whatever city this is because it hasn't been called Metropolis yet. Just in this story, we've got a major metropolitan area surrounded in close proximity to a mountainous area with rocks big enough to smash a car into, a wooded area as seen by the rows of trees in the background of several panels, a bog of quicksand, and a field big enough for a plane to take off. That's a pretty diverse landscape. In any event, we find Lois struggling in a bog of quicksand. Superman dives in in an attempt to free her. When Superman grabs her, Lois makes a curious remark that Superman is in fact hurting her. But once Lois faints, Superman is able to pick her up and slowly make his way out of the mire. I don't quite understand the line of dialogue where Lois says that Superman's hurting her. Unless Siegel was trying to show that, you know, Superman's very powerful or that he has to be careful when he interacts with quote-unquote normal humans that the lines never followed up on so I don't really know what Siegel was going for with it and as such it it's just kind of a, an odd line stuck in there that doesn't make a lot of sense but anyway once free of the quicksand Superman and Lois head back towards the city and complete with some light flirtations between the two on the trip Back at the Daily Star, the editor is about to blow a gasket, wondering where Lois' story is, because they're about to go to press. Suddenly, in through the window climbs Superman, delivering Lois safe and sound. 
Superman bids them adieu and starts to leave when Lois cries out for someone to stop him because he's Superman. The editor exclaims, Superman? Jumpin' catfish! Which, A, why is he so surprised? Is he used to seeing men in tights and a cape climb through his window? Who else would it be? But B, Jumpin' Catfish is just awesome. Anyway, the editor asks for an interview, but Superman tells them he'll have to see Clark Kent for that and takes his leave. Later, Clark returns to the office and finds out that he has joined the ranks of the Daily Star's bullpen for landing an interview with the famous Superman. And the final panel is an ad heralding the start of a new adventure in the next strip, so don't miss it. Thus ends the second storyline of the Superman Daily Newspaper strip, and wow. Despite the fact that it had a lot of scenes similar to what we've seen before, it's still a pretty exciting and action-packed story. Plus, if you look at it as its own entity, as I'm sure a lot of people read this without ever having seen a single comic, it's pretty phenomenal, making that a strong two-for-two two for the newspaper serial right out of the gate. What we've got here feels like a refined version of the story, or stories, from the first two issues of Action Comics. Instead of Superman jumping from unconnected adventure to unconnected adventure, Siegel has taken many of the cool moments from the first ten or so comics, plus some new stuff, and rewritten them all so they create one story from beginning to end. On one hand, it's disappointing to be reading scenes that are, for all intents and purposes, exactly like what we read before. But man, it's still cool. I love the dynamic start to the storyline with Superman saving the trapped men in the vault. It once again brings the reader right into the thick of things with Superman bursting into action, literally and figuratively, in the very first strip. And since this is the first action we've seen from Superman himself, I like that Siegel didn't waste any time getting to it. It serves as a good opening to this storyline, but also as a sort of coda to the last storyline, because it lets Siegel explain for the first time why Clark became a reporter, and specifically spell out why he adopted the mild-mannered persona of Clark Kent. And that's something that won't be explained in comics for a while. We still don't know much about Clark's childhood, beyond that he spent some time in an orphanage, or more importantly, how he got the name Clark Kent, but things are definitely coming together. It's interesting, too, at least from the perspective of, of a modern reader, to see the role tragedy played in this early Superman. Heroes will come along, like Batman, Spider-Man, etc., where tragedy and death is part of their origin, usually inspiring the hero to take up his costumed identity and fight the fight. But here, in this earliest Superman story, it's interesting that tragedy isn't what inspired the hero, but his secret identity. It's a nice twist, even if it really isn't a twist, because there's nothing to twist at this point. This reasoning for Clark adapting the mild-mannered persona is something that's pretty much unique here, too. The radio show, which we'll get to later, gives another reason, and in most modern interpretations, he puts on the Clark Kent glasses out of a need for privacy or to protect those that he loves. So the fact that Clark would become a reporter and pretend to be something he's not in order to do his job as Superman better is a really nice take on things. And it also sets very concretely that here in these early stories, Superman is the quote-unquote real person where Clark is the disguise. 
And this is an aspect of the mythology that is very debated over the years in the multiple incarnations. We get a slightly different take on the first meeting of Superman and Lois here. Well, it's it's very similar, but I don't know. It's just missing something. To me, it doesn't have the same wow factor. And it could be that there's more dialogue in this meeting. Superman says more, and Lois has a line as well, where she didn't in the one from Action Comics number one. But something about it just really takes all the air out of it in comparison to the last one. And speaking of character interactions, there is nothing between Lois and Clark in this story. In fact, if I can spoil ahead just a little bit, there won't be anything between the two until the beginning of the fourth storyline, which is more than two months into the strip's run. I don't know if that was a conscious decision by Siegel or just a coincidence that it happened, but I found that interesting since it's been a pretty big part of the stories in the comics so far. After Superman gets done terrorizing Nikki and the other thugs, he leaps into the air and uses his telescopic vision to zero in on the Daily Star building. This jumped out at me, not only because, as I said, it's the first time Superman's vision powers have been mentioned, but also because it seems a more proactive use of Superman's powers. Instead of running to the Star building to check things out, he makes use of his multiple abilities at once to check things out more efficiently. We've not really seen Superman do that type of thing before, but then, you know, being strong and fast are really the only things we've seen him do for the most part. I really don't have too much else to say about the story itself, since most of the scenes are picked up from the stories I've already talked about, I really said my piece about them there. Uh, there is one more thing, and that's the star's editor. Siegel gives the editor a lot more personality here. He only appears in three of the strips, but just in those three, you really get an early sense of the stern yet blustery character Perry White will eventually be known for. The star's editor is largely still just keeping the seat warm, but again we see more personality being injected into the character that will eventually be such an integral part of the mythology. So it's interesting just seeing all these pieces come together and coalesce into the Superman mythology that we know as modern readers. The art in these strips is fantastic. The lines are bold and that really works well in black and white. There's a good amount of detail in most of the panels and since a lot of the scenes are similar to the ones from previous comic stories, a lot of the panels are similar as well, but they're all redrawn and in most cases an improvement over the original. And again, lots of good facial expressions and body language from the characters. Schuster really did a great job on them, and that really helps the storylines. So, two thumbs up again, both on the art and the writing. They are really knocking it out of the park so far on the newspaper serial. This, uh, this story was reprinted in the first volume from the dailies from Kitchen Sink Press. And as I mentioned last episode, DC has also posted the first few years of the strips on their site. So, if you don't have the volumes which you really should, but if you don't have the volumes and want to check that out, I'll include a link to this story uh, in the show notes for this episode. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years given us a legend. 
These are their stories. If you happen to miss the first part of the spotlight on Jerry Siegel, please go back and listen to episode 10 for that. In that portion, I cover the beginnings of Siegel's life, his earliest comic work, and collaborations with good friend Joe Schuster, as well as the creation and sale of Superman. When I left off, it was the beginning of a bit of a darker time for Siegel. Both he and Schuster, following a lawsuit against DC over the ownership of Superboy, had been fired from all work at DC and their names removed from the Superman strip. With the lawsuit having ended his time at DC, at least for now, Siegel started looking for work other places. Rejoining their former editor Vin Sullivan at his new company, Magazine Enterprises, Siegel and Schuster created Funny Man, a crime-fighting comedian loosely based on Danny Kaye. Unfortunately, Funny Man failed to become the success of their previous collaboration, and after six issues and a short-lived newspaper strip in 1948, Funny Man faded into history. Siegel's personal life also took a turn in 1948. After years of estrangement, Siegel and his first wife, Bella, were granted a divorce, and soon after, Siegel married Yolan Kovacs, a.k.a. Joanne Carter, who all those years before had met Siegel and Schuster when she acted as a visual model for Lois Lane. With Funny Man failing to take off, Siegel went to work for publisher Ziff Davis, first as writer and editor, and later as comics art director. And throughout the 50s, Siegel wrote for a variety of publishers, including Toby Press, Prize Comics, Quality Comics, the Jerry Iger Studio, Farrell Publications, and Feature Comics. He also wrote briefly for Charlton Comics, where he created such characters as Mr. Muscles and Nature Boy. But still, despite this, it was a period of hard financial times for Siegel. In 1958, without Siegel's knowledge, his wife Joanne met with Jack Leibowitz, DC's publisher. She pleaded with him on behalf of Jerry as well as Schuster, threatening to take their plight public, and famously asking Leibowitz, Do you really want to see in the newspaper, Creator of Superman Starves to Death? Leibowitz eventually relented and allowed Siegel to return to DC as a writer under then-Superman editor Mort Weisinger. However, he would be working for standard rates and receive no byline or noticeable credit in the books. Siegel was employed writing stories not just for Superman, but for the entire line of Superman-related books, including Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, and Superboy. It was during this period that Siegel wrote what are among his most well-regarded Superman stories, including Superman's Return to Krypton from Superman number 141, The Death of Superman from Superman number 149, which was an imaginary story that is often considered among the greatest Silver Age Superman stories ever, as well as The Sweetheart Superman Forgot from Superman number 165. Also during this time, Siegel wrote stories such as How Luther Met Superboy, which redefined the history of the relationship between Superman and Lex Luthor, and revealed how Luthor lost his hair. Siegel also wrote many stories featuring the Bizarro World and several early stories of the Legion of Superheroes, introducing many characters and elements to that mythology, including Brainiac 5, Ultra Boy, Colossal Boy, Triplicate Girl, Chameleon Boy, The Legion of Supervillains, Computo, and more, as well as writing the story which told the death of Lightning Lad. Lesser known is that during this time, Siegel also wrote a handful of non-Superman stories, including three Adam Strange stories and a Space Ranger story, 
all for DC's Mystery in Space title, in addition to a couple stories for DC's other sci-fi anthology book, Strange Adventures. Siegel also found work with DC's biggest rival, Marvel Comics. In 1963, he was hired by Stan Lee to write stories featuring the Human Torch. Siegel assumed a pen name, which was a common practice in those days because competition between DC and Marvel was so incredibly fierce. And as Joe Carter scripted Lee plotted stories in issues 112 and 113 of Marvel's Strange Tales book. While these stories are notable for introducing the Torch's girlfriend, Doris Evans, Unfortunately, Siegel's scripts were deemed too campy for Marvel, so his tenure with that company didn't last. Worse, Siegel's return to DC was also not fated to be permanent. Siegel was once more fired in 1966 when he again filed suit against them over the copyright renewal rights to Superman. Under the then-existing copyright law, a creator was entitled to claim them 28 years after the property's creation and Siegel felt that the out-of-court settlement which he and Schuster had signed years earlier did not preempt these rights. The courts disagreed, however, and in 1968 ruled against both Siegel and Schuster. Over the years that followed, Siegel again worked for a variety of publishers. For a brief period, he worked for MLJ Archie Comics as part of an attempted revival of their superhero line. He is credited with creating the Mighty Crusaders team as well as the writing on the title Flyman. He was slated to write a title featuring Steel Sterling, the Man of Might, aka the Man of Steel, though that title never materialized. He also wrote for England's Lion, scripting stories for The Spider, starting with the character's third appearance and continuing on for most of that character's run, as well as a pair of stories featuring No Man of the Thunder Agents for Tower Comics with art in both by Ogden Whitney. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Siegel wrote a number of stories featuring Disney's Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Credited with no less than 160 stories during this period, these were published mainly in Topolino, a title put out by an Italian Disney comic book licensee. However, a couple were also printed by Western Publishing's Gold Key imprint, for whom he would also write other stories featuring the characters of Tiger Girl and the Owl. In 1970, Siegel made a brief return to Marvel, this time writing under his own name, scripting a handful of backup stories featuring Angel of the X-Men. These stories were published in two issues of the Kazar series, as well as Marvel Tales number 30, and all had art by George Tuska and Dick Ayers. There was also a Gunhawk story in Western Gunfighters number 1, with art by Werner Roth and Sal Buscema. In the following year, Siegel wrote a pair of horror stories for Skywald Publishing Company. There was Let the Dreamer Beware in Psycho No. 5 with art by Ralph Reese, and The Living Gargoyle in Nightmare No. 6 with art by Carlos Garzon. Despite no longer being credited in the comics with the creation of Superman, and still being on the outs with DC, Siegel and Schuster's years of hard work and significant contributions to the comic book industry were honored in 1971 when they were named as the first inductees into the Academy of Comic Book Arts Hall of Fame. This honor was followed up in 1975 when they were each presented with the Inkpot Award at the 1975 San Diego Comic-Con. Throughout all this, Siegel and Schuster continued to appeal the 1968 decision concerning the renewal rights to Superman. They continued their appeals until early 1975, stopping just short of going all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Siegel expressed that they refrained from taking the case any higher saying those in charge of D.C. at the time had implied if they would stop their legal action, 
that DC might have some sort of compensation or recognition for them. With the years that had passed, Siegel and Schuster opted to take the gamble, thinking that those in charge might have a new way of thinking. Unfortunately, it was not quite to be. By the fall of 1975, no recompense had been made. Angry at what they perceived to be yet another slight, as well as hearing the news that DC had been paid upwards of $3 million for the film rights to Superman, Siegel issued a press release chronicling his and Schuster's plight and viciously lashing out against DC and Warner Brothers. Despite sending out approximately 400 copies of the release, there was not an immediate response from the public or the press. Finally, the story was picked up by Phil Yeh's small West Coast publication, Cobblestone. Once they broke the story, it was picked up by the LA Times, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and other papers around the country. Soon, comic book legends Jerry Robinson and Neil Adams became aware of the situation and resolved to act. They knew the legal battle was lost, but still, they felt Siegel and Schuster deserved more. Both Siegel and Schuster had been financially strapped for years, and their age and failing health had only exacerbated their situation. Robinson and Adams' goal was a simple one, to see that Siegel and Schuster were treated fairly by the company that had made millions off of their creation, and they had no intentions on stopping until they saw that goal fulfilled. The two orchestrated a huge national campaign push, including press releases, press conferences, television appearances, and more. Soon, the Academy of Comic Book Arts, the National Cartoonist Society, and comic creators old and new rallied behind Siegel and Schuster. The push worked, and after further needling from DC publisher Carmine Infantino and Warner Brothers Executive Vice President Jay Emmett, DC finally relented, and just a week before Christmas 1975, a settlement was reached. Not only would Siegel and Schuster receive an annual stipend and health benefits for the rest of their lives, but from then on, creator credit to both Siegel and Schuster was restored and would forever be attached to not just Superman comic books, but also novels, movies, television shows, and anywhere else Superman might appear. Finally, after three decades, Siegel and Schuster's names would once again be associated with their most famous creation. A year later, Siegel would again be honored when he received the President's Award from the Science Fiction Writers of America group. Encouraged by these turns of events, and his newfound fame, Siegel became active in the comic book community once again, attending conventions and writing letters to fanzines. He also returned to writing and, over the next few years, would write for a variety of small press publishers. Among these was Eclipse Comics, where, in 1983, he wrote The Starling, a six-part backup story with art by Val Myrick in Eclipse's Destroyer Duck comic. A solo book was also announced featuring the character, but was never published. Siegel's final comic book story was Ricky Robot, a backup story with art by Dan Day and Dave Sim in Cerebus number 64 and 65. These were cover dated July and August 1984 and published by Aardvark Vanheim. In the mid-1980s, Siegel was invited by editor Julius Schwartz to write an imaginary final Superman story following Crisis on Infinite Earths, but he declined and the job later went to writer Alan Moore. Though his writing days were behind him, more honors followed as he and Schuster were inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 1992 and the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1993. Jerry Siegel died January 28, 1996 in Los Angeles of heart failure. He was survived by his wife Joanne, daughter Laura, son Michael, and two grandchildren. He was cremated and his ashes were laid to rest in Cleveland. In 2005, Siegel was posthumously honored with the Bill Finger Award for Excellence in Comic Book Writing. 
He was the first to receive the award, which was given annually at the San Diego Comic-Con. More accolades are sure to follow in the years ahead as new readers go to discover Siegel and the hundreds of stories he wrote during his lifetime. Jerry may be gone, but he will live on forever through the stories he gave us, and especially through his greatest creation, Superman. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life, April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com the blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com and you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at mypolllist.blogspot.com and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. Think back to that initial short stint Siegel did at Marvel. That was the fall of 1963. The Fantastic Four had only been around for about a year and a half. Spider-Man and Iron Man were both in their infancy. The first issue of The Avengers and the X-Men came out the same month as Siegel's first story for Marvel. So, this was the time period when the Marvel Universe was born. Can you imagine if Siegel had continued writing for Marvel? Possibly working with artists like Herb Trimpey, John Romita, maybe even Jack Kirby? The mind boggles at the awesome stories that could have been created from those pairings. Anyway, that concludes the two-part spotlight on Jerry Siegel. His life story, as well as Joe Schuster's, is one that is interesting and heartbreaking and encouraging all at once. I hope you enjoyed hearing a bit more about Superman's co-creator, 
I know that I enjoyed learning more about Siegel's life and even learned some new things that I didn't know previously, so hopefully you did as well. If you liked the uh, Creator Spotlight, drop me an email at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and let me know. I'd be really interested in hearing if that's something you guys enjoy or if you don't or just your general thoughts on it. Okay, it's time for the announcement that I plugged at the beginning of the show. And joining me for this part of the show is my friend Michael Kaiser. Hello, everybody. And the reason I asked Michael to come on is because the project that we're working on is, or, or the announcement that I'm making is actually for a project that we're doing together. So uh, what we're doing is we've started a new podcast called Legends of the Batman, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. Basically, we're, we're taking a, a month worth of Batman for each episode and um, finding him wherever we can, whether it be comic books or, or you know, newspaper strips or his serial, multiple serials, or, um, you know, eventually even movies and cartoons. And we're just going to try and uh, offer up a summary of those stories and uh, our opinion on, on, you know, those stories. And um, we're starting at the very beginning with uh, Detective Comics number 27. Right. And we'll be doing... You know, comic books and just comics at first, and then we'll eventually yeah. get into the serials and the TV show and right. cartoons and uh, the Superman radio serial where Batman appeared. And, and our, our show will be six hours long, but <laughs> at, at that point, it just very well may be. But, but it'll be worth listening to anyway. <laughs> We've got a site set up at uh, BatmanLegends.com, and you can download a promo, or I'm actually going to play the promo here in a minute. Uh, and you can subscribe. There's a Facebook page. There's an iTunes link. There's the RSS feed for the show. So be sure to head on over to that and uh, check it out. The first yep. episode will be out on Thursday, March 31st. So yep. not long after you hear this. So I'm going to play the promo, and then I'll be back for the end of the show stuff. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman! Bruce, look! The bat signal! Come on, chum! To the bat cave! It's your car, right? Chicks love the car. I don't play favorites. Every criminal must be brought to justice. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. I swear to God. Swear to me! Ah! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning at BatmanLegends.com. Michael and I have already recorded a few episodes, and we've had a lot of fun doing it. The first episode is scheduled to go live on or about March 31st, so if you like Batman, be sure to check that out. Once again, the URL is www.BatmanLegends.com. I think that about does it for this episode. I want to thank you for joining me again. Next week, well, next week's going to be something a little bit different, so I won't talk about that quite yet. 
But still, thanks for joining me this time out, and I hope you'll come back next week. As always, if you have comments, questions, or feedback on the show, you can email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. There's also the website where you can leave comments or see show notes for the episodes, and that's at greatcrypton.com. At the site, you'll also find links for the RSS feed, iTunes, and the show's Facebook page, not to mention other occasional posts about Superman or comic book-related goodness. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. And that is the home or the second home to many great Superman-related podcasts that are worth checking out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in his copyright DC Comics. Thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you next time. Goodbye. Chicks dig the car. This is why Superman works alone. <laughs>